This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. Please stay tuned at the end of this episode for an exclusive interview with Paulette Bro, author of Never at Ease, a book outlining the different ups and downs in her 30-year career as a female officer with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. This episode contains explicit and adult content. Listener discretion is advised. All cases and stories covered by this podcast are true stories involving real people. The opinions of the host and any interviewees are simply that, opinions. The credibility of any witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. It was Monday morning and the day promised to be a beautiful one. Waldo got tired of waiting for his sister to leave and decided to walk on ahead of her with his cousin to the Pembroke Academy, where they both attended school. He left home at 8 a.m. Josie was running late. She was waiting on a friend. And finally, at 8.30 a.m., she grabbed her lunch and school book, said her goodbyes, and headed out the door alone, with a bright smile on her face, ready to walk the 2.3 miles from her home to school. Waldo arrived home at approximately 4.30 p.m. that same day, and after noticing that Josie wasn't home, asked where she had been or where she was, as she was not at school that day. The family was immediately worried, as this was out of character. Right away, her dad started organizing a search party. This is episode 17 of True Crime Real Time, The Butcher of the Frontier, Josie Langmaid's Story. And this is your host, Genevieve Germain. Just a few items about this podcast. True Crime Real Time is a bi-weekly podcast covering missing persons and unsolved murders. We're available across many platforms such as CastBox, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, and many others. Links, information, and pictures relating to the cases or stories we cover can be found on our website at www.truecrimerealtimepod.com or on our Instagram account or on our Facebook page. The links to Instagram, our website, and our Facebook page can be found on the podcast channel description. Photos, as well as any other information, are generally posted at the same time as when the episode is published. Now back to the show. For this episode, we are viewing from the typical unsolved or cold case from Southern Ontario as we travel all the way back to Pembroke, New Hampshire in the fall of 1875. In 1875, the town of Pembroke boasted a population between 2,500 to 2,800 people, many of whom were French Canadians who worked the woods as woodcutters or on the farms. There were no telephones and no cars. James Langmaid was a well-known individual in town, on the board of selectmen, a successful farmer, 
and was in the process of brokering a deal or in the midst of building a business block in Suncook that year. They lived a comfortable life, and James was able to pay the education of all his children. He had four living children at the time. Josie was the oldest and was just shy of her 18th birthday. The second oldest was her only brother, Waldo, who was 15 at the time. Both Josie and Waldo were James's children from his first marriage. The Lang maids lived approximately 2.3 miles from Pembroke Academy, where both Waldo and Josie were attending school. Josie did very well in school and was often described as bright, intellectual, and cheery. Josie was an elegant and slender, fashionable young lady with a light complexion, light hair, and eyes. She was intelligent and did very well in school. And one of her best friends was Lilia Fowler. On Monday, October 4th, 1875, both Waldo and Josie were getting ready to walk to school. Josie was running a bit late, and although they typically walked together, Waldo decided to leave ahead of her and walk to school with his friend and cousin, likely to ensure that he arrived on time. He left the house at 8 a.m. A half an hour later, at 8.30 a.m., Josie put on her waterproof blue cape, grabbed her lunch and school book, said her goodbyes, and left the house to walk the 2.3-mile route to school. Josie would have to pass a total of six homes to get to school, four of which were close to her home. A large part of the route is wooded and not populated with only two houses further apart. That's Amos Hoyt's house and Mr. Hartford's residence. On that Monday morning, she was seen by Amos Hoyt's family as she passed their residence, who lived a quarter of a mile from the Langmaid's residence. They weren't close enough to speak, but did recall seeing her pass that morning. Once on Academy Road, another resident, Deacon Giles, passed, coming from the opposite direction, and said good morning to her as he passed. He was the last known person to have seen Josie that morning prior to being murdered. She had made it past a Hartford residence. By this time, she was about 1.3 miles from her school, and this section of the route was dense with wood and brush with no human habitation within a half a mile in each direction. Waldo arrived back at home after school at approximately 4.30 p.m. and on noticing that Josie was not home, asked where she was as she was not at school that day. Her family was immediately concerned as she had left for school in the morning and the situation was out of character for her. Her dad started looking right away and went to his closest neighbor, David Merrill, to ask for his help with the search. They subsequently sent messages all over Pembroke and Suncook Village asking for help in the search, and anywhere between 100 to 200 men with lanterns showed up from Pembroke and Suncook Village. They split off into teams, or some went out individually, and then search officially started as the sky grew dark. Mr. Cop, a friend of Josie's dad and one of the 200 searchers, saw a glimpse of an object lying flat on the ground at approximately 8 p.m. As he drew closer, he realized it was that of a body with skirts thrown around her and exclaimed, "'Tis her!" Josie was lying on her back, covered in blood. She had been decapitated, and her head was not with her body. It was a disturbing and grisly sight that deeply affected all those present. She was nude from the waist up, and her garments were cut from her body. They were saturated in blood and subsequently thrown back on top of her to mostly cover her. Part of her chest and one knee were still visible. One leg was slightly bent at the knee with her foot resting on the other leg. She still had on her boots. One of her arms was twisted and pinned under her torso, while the other arm lay resting over her chest. Of the body parts and limbs that could be seen at first glance didn't look horribly disfigured. 
The ground and leaves were saturated with blood where her neck was located. Her blue cape and head were missing and a few green twigs tied in a Frenchman's knot lay upon her. It wasn't long after Mr. Cop exclaimed that he had found Josie that her father ran over to him only to be taken aback and shocked at such a scene. When he saw the state of her body, he fell to his knees and screamed, Oh my God, out in anguish, and grabbed and hugged her mutilated body as he cried. Several men formed a circle around him, removed their hats, bowed their heads, and quietly shed a few tears while others made a hasty stretcher to be able to carry her body back to the open wagon waiting on the road about 80 to 100 feet away to bring her body back to the Langmaid's home. Nearly 200 searchers solemnly followed in procession with lanterns lit against the darkening sky as they made their way slowly there. As they reached the house, the other members of the family came to meet the wagon with broken hearts. Physicians had been on scene and followed them to the home in order to complete a quick examination while the search continued. At this time, they were able to determine that she had been raped and then horribly mutilated. Her external sexual organs and part of her vagina were cut off, likely to try and mask the rape. During the initial examination, the search party continued. At this time, they were able to locate her hat, which was about 33 feet away from the spot where her body was located. The hat itself wasn't significantly damaged, but mainly indented, and there was evidence of blood on it. The search ended just before 11 p.m. The search party returned to the woods the following morning at 8 a.m. to continue their search. Her head was found one-third of a mile from where her body was located, wrapped in the blue waterproof cape she had been wearing. Another 600 feet further west, opposite an open field by the roadside, they found an apple in Josie's schoolbook. A stick or club was also located that was broken into three pieces. One end had been whittled, and one section had evidence of blood with grass stains, as though the perpetrator attempted to wipe the blood off in the dirt and grass. This area appeared to be where she was first assaulted, as here was evidence of a severe struggle. This was about halfway between where her body was found and where her head was located. The theory was that she was incapacitated, then dragged to where her body was located, raped and murdered, mutilated, and then her head was wrapped in her blue cloak and deposited further away along the route that the murderer was taking. According to early calculations, Josie would have likely reached this location around 9.25 a.m. on Monday, October 4, 1875. Based on the location itself, authorities believe that the perpetrator would know this spot or be acquainted with the topography of the country, as it seemed to be the only spot on the road where you could easily go undiscovered. Once the head was located, a thorough examination or autopsy was completed. The autopsy results show that Josie was raped and beaten, but her cause of death was exsanguination due to a cut throat and subsequent beheading. The physicians determined that she was still alive when this was done. The mutilation to her genitals were done after her death. It was determined that a sharp knife or razor was used to cut her throat, and possibly an axe, due to the damage to the back of her neck when she was decapitated. The head was twisted to the side by force at the time this occurred, and there was evidence of a medium-sized boot heel imprint on her cheek. The partial semicircle of a heel with five nail heads was evident. There were other boot imprints on other areas of the cheek, but one was fairly pronounced. The physicians gave their opinion that the perpetrator was an unskilled person based on the cutting of her neck and the mutilations to her body. 
the spinal column was severed between the first and second vertebrae. One hand had three broken bones and a partially severed thumb, indicating that she had raised her hand in self-defense when being hit on the side of the head with a club. The autopsy also confirmed that there were severe blows to each side of the head, lacerations on the side of her head near the top of her left cheek, and that laceration went so deep as to go to the bone. The boot heel print was on the right cheek. A cast of the print was taken. Her ear was lacerated. There were twigs and brush in her hair as well as one of her earrings. Her pin, rings, wallet, and other missing body parts were not located at this time. Josie's funeral was held on Wednesday, October 6, 1875 at 11 a.m. Approximately 1,000 people attended her service. Shortly after the funeral service, several men went out again to complete another search to see if there was any other evidence as to who the murderer was. During this search, they located at approximately 4.30 p.m. pieces of Josie's belt buckle and near it the backcomb and switch of false hair she had been wearing on that Monday. A handkerchief would later be found on the 7th of November. There were two initial arrests made on suspicion in the rape and murder of Josie Langmaid. One was against William Drew, who was around 22 years old, married, and had a reputation of following his vices with little self-control, and wore his wife's boots. It was alleged that he made untoward comments to Josie in the past. He was eventually let go as the boot impression did not match his boots. Another individual was arrested on suspicion. He was a homeless person who was transient, so would pick up odd jobs here and there. Almost none of the people in the area actually thought he was involved and he was let go almost immediately. In and around the 8th of October, Selectman Truworthy Fowler received a letter from a Judge Farnsworth of St. Albans, Vermont. The letter indicated that a Mr. Joseph LePage was a suspect in the murder of a young schoolteacher named Marietta Ball, who was attacked, raped, and mutilated and murdered while walking to a friend's residence after the school day. He also mentioned that this LePage had subsequently moved from St. Albans to Suncook in the spring of 1875. The letter mentioned that LePage's children worked at the Suncook factory. Upon receiving this letter, he went to the Suncook factory and the overseer had pointed out where LePage lived. When Truworthy went to the house, he instantly recognized LePage, as he had hired LePage to do some work for him as a thresher. He was taken into custody for questioning at this time. A few main items came up during the investigation. Andrew Fuller, Truworthy Fowler's son, who was working with him and was 20 at the time, recalled a conversation he had with LePage when they were working at the front of the house one late afternoon at the end of September. He indicated that one day his 16-year-old sister came home from school and LePage started asking questions about her. Who she was, where she went to school, how she got there, which route did she take. Not thinking anything of it, he told him and showed him the following day when they were driving around the area. His sister's name was Lilia Fowler and was very good friends with Josie Langmaid. Josie and Lilia went to the same school and traveled the same route to get there, often going together along with Josie's brother Waldo and a cousin. A young boy of 13 advised that about a week before Josie's murder, LePage was asking about another teen by the name of Sarah Prentice. He continued his line of questioning about her the following day and then made some obscene comments or questions that the boy got embarrassed about and left. A couple of days before the murder, so on the weekend, a few witnesses indicated that they saw a man who was later identified as Joseph LePage walking and stalking about on Academy Road. He was brandishing a club or long stick and would dart into the bushes. One mother and daughter were actually almost chased until they came across another man picking berries. 
This man accompanied the mother back home after she dropped her daughter at school. The mother's name was Albersia Watson. They were able to offer a description of the person, lean and muscular, dark eyes with black wiry hair and beard. Furthermore, the boot-heel comparison to the cast was a match to LePage's boot. They had tested approximately six or more different boots and only LePage's matched exactly every nail size, width, and space in between, as well as the circumference or part of the circumference of the actual boot heel. Some blood analysis was completed. The specialist confirmed human blood on LePage's vest, around the fly of his overalls, the bottom of his pants, and on his hat and overcoat. His shirt was not found. His wife indicated that he came home with the missing sleeve in some tears. She washed it and put it to dry on the clothesline and that it disappeared from there. Chemical analysis on both the blood on his clothes and that of Josie's matched. A knife with a three-inch blade was taken from his person when they searched him, and they also located a knife and razor in his home after searching the home. This was after he said he did not have a knife at his home. Eyewitness testimony also put him on Academy Road around the time when Josie would have been murdered. Josie left her home at 8.30 a.m. Walking at a normal gait for her height, she would have reached the location where she was attacked at approximately 9.25 a.m. maximum. The area where she was attacked was a little more than a mile from her home. That morning, LePage went to Thomas Gardner's for work, based on an arrangement he had recently made. He showed up there at 6 a.m. Gardner said he wasn't ready to work and that he wanted to finish his breakfast and that he would meet him in the woods after breakfast. When Gardner finished his breakfast, he left to walk to the woodlot and didn't see LePage all day despite being on the lookout for him. LePage was later seen near the bakery in Suncook on Glass Street at approximately 6.30 a.m. He was then seen on Pembroke Street at 8 a.m. Between 8.30 a.m. and 8.55 a.m., he was seen at the corner of Pembroke and Academy Road, turning down Academy Road. This corner is about 1.3 miles from the location where Josie was attacked and murdered. At around 1.35 p.m., he showed up at Coffrin Woods to a bunch of men who were building a shanty. One of the builders or workers said he did not see him before this time as they only started building the shanty in the morning and they were already more than three quarters of the way completed when he showed up and that they had already stopped to have their lunch. LePage claimed that he had gotten lost in the woods and followed the sound of the axes. He then asked how to get to Joseph Daniel's place. He was given directions and then asked the men if he had enough time to go there and come back in order to walk back home with them. They said yes. He was not wearing an overcoat and did not have an axe with him at the time, but he did have both when he returned to the men. He went on to Daniel's and apparently asked for some wood to be measured and Daniel said he would do it later. This was around 1.45pm to 2pm and the drivers just returned from a delivery and were unharnessing the horses and giving them their one hour lunch break before going out on their next delivery. There are some conflicting stories with regards to the amount of times Joseph visited fellow Frenchman Daigneau, but we'll get into that a little bit later. He then said he was going to retrieve his coat and axe that he had left in the nearby barn and came back around 5-10 to 10 minutes later with both. Joseph LePage showed up at Thomas Gardner's house a little after 6.30pm on the 4th. Gardner made a comment about not seeing LePage that day, to which he replied that he got lost in the woods and that he left his axe and coat in the barn near Joe Daigneau's road. He had said he went to Sam Coffrin's lot and then to Joe Dingo's lot. He then left and came back five minutes later, but didn't sit down. When LePage came back in, 
Julie, Thomas's wife, told them both about the missing girl, Josie. She had said that she was lost. At this point, no one knew that she was dead. Lynn LePage said that it was too bad that the girl was killed. Joseph LePage was arrested for rape and murder on October 15, 1875, 11 days after Josie was violently assaulted and killed. Tragedy struck the Langmaids once again. Following Josie's death, Waldo became very ill and died on December 15, 1875. He came down with typhoid, followed by pneumonia. He was buried next to his sister. LePage's trial was brought to court on January 4, 1876. He pleaded not guilty and his defense was that he had an alibi. The trial was presided over by a judge and jury. Before proceeding with the trial, the jury and prisoner, as well as all attorneys, were taken to all locations that were to be discussed at trial. The Pembroke Academy was visited and then where Josie's book and apple and broken club were found. They entered the woods to where her body was found and where her head had also been located. They walked to Littlewoods and Hartford's home was pointed out. They were then driven to the Langmate home. The trial lasted eight days and the jury only took one hour to deliberate and came back with a guilty verdict for murder in the first degree. The blood analysis and boot impression comparison evidence were highlighted as well as the eyewitness testimony as to LePage's location on October 4th and his conversations with Andrew Fuller and the 13-year-old boy. It appeared that his original targets were either Lilia Fowler or Sarah Prentice. LePage's wife's sister, Julienne Rousse, a resident of Joliet, Quebec, testified in the morning of a June day in 1871, LePage attacked her while wearing a mask. She removed his mask and recognized him to be her brother-in-law, having known Joseph since she was around 10 years old. He choked and strangled her and rubbed dirt in her mouth, raped her and left her for dead. She had lost consciousness. When she came to, she returned home and told them what had happened. This was the main reason LePage and his family left Quebec and headed into the United States. Her neck was severely injured and she was barely able to eat or drink for about a month. The bruising around her neck was significant. She was 20 years old at the time and LePage would have been around 32. The detail about the mask matched the details in the assault and murder of Marietta Ball, to which he was suspect. As mentioned, Joseph LePage's defense was that he had an alibi. The defense called several witnesses, all of whom were French-Canadian, the main one being Joseph Daigneault, who testified that Joseph LePage had been at his home twice that day, once from 10 a.m. until noon and then arriving again at 1.45 p.m. Coincidentally, in the case of Marietta Ball, for whom he never went to trial, he was also alibied by another French-Canadian. Some of the French Canadians believe that he was only arrested because he was French, just like the initial arrest on suspicion of the homeless man was most likely due to the race of that individual. That being said, the timeline given by Daigneault was contradicted by another witness that the defense called. The defense also called their own experts on the blood analysis. After the defense rested its case, the jury deliberated for only one hour. They discussed the case and only one ballot was cast and the jurors were unanimous in their decision. They found Joseph LePage guilty of murder in the first degree. He was subsequently sentenced to death by hanging to take place the following January in 1877. An interesting fact of the case was that there was two threatening letters that were received, one to Albertia Watson and one to the judge. Both were in very broken English and they suspected a French-Canadian to be the author. One was purposely dropped in front of Albertia while in Suncook village in the street, and one was mailed with a New York postage to the judge. 
Another curious mention during the trial was that Joseph remained emotionless during the entire trial and showed only vague interest when the jury was shown the toward clothing. LePage's counsel managed to win him a new trial on the grounds that the testimony of his sister-in-law, Julianne Rousse, was inadmissible. Once again, he was found guilty in the second trial. He was executed on Friday, March 15, 1878. He was hung by neck and took approximately 18 minutes to die. The Thursday evening before his execution, he confessed to the murder of Marietta Ball, the schoolteacher from St. Albans, Vermont, and to that of Josie Langmaid. He drew a diagram for the murder of Marietta Ball and accredited the clairvoyant that worked with the police for being too accurate as to the reason he left his St. Albans. He purportedly also advised where to find garments belonging to Marietta Ball and the items he took when he murdered Josie Langmaid. Just as he wore a mask for the brutal rape and attempted murder of his sister-in-law, Julienne, he also wore a mask complete with Frenchman's knots in the assault and murder of Marietta Ball. Two months after LePage's execution, Marietta Ball's undergarments were discovered in the residence that Joseph LePage rented when he was living in and around St. Albans. Following his execution, after looking at the facts and circumstances of the murders of Marietta Ball and Josie Langmaid, and the assault and attempted murder of Julienne Rousse, it is believed that he also is responsible for two other murders in Canada, a mother and her 16-year-old daughter. The 16-year-old was raped, mutilated, and murdered, and the similarities would lean to it being committed by the same individual. Joseph LePage is one of the first known serial killers in Canada. It is believed that he raped and murdered four women, or teens. He was abusive to his wife and especially to his oldest daughter. Joseph came from a hardworking, respectable family, and we do not know what drove him to be violent. After his execution, he was buried in Suncook, New Hampshire. This brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you'll join me next week for a regular episode covering the murder of Hamilton resident Gail Ryan. Remember to stay tuned for the exclusive interview with Paulette Bro, author of Never at Ease. If you have questions, comments, or case suggestions, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at truecrimerealtimepod at gmail.com or complete the case submission form on our website. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of True Crime Real Time. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give us a good rating and leave us a review. This will help our reach and bring more attention to the cases we cover. And guys, I'm really excited to tell you I'm publishing my very first episode on the Canadian Correctional System on Patreon, and research is underway on the second Patreon episode, which will cover the very last two people executed in Canada before capital punishment was abolished. If you want to listen to exclusive episodes, ad-free, and early release episodes, head over to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. There are several different options, ranging from armchair detective to co-producer. The link is in the description. I would also like to thank all of those of you who've taken the time to leave me a positive review. I really appreciate all of your support. Make sure you check us out at truecrimerealtimepod.com to read the true crime article on this episode, as well as see the accompanying photos. Before we get to Paulette's exclusive interview, here's another podcast that I recommend. Morbidology is a weekly true crime podcast hosted by me, Emily G. Thompson, author of Unsolved Child Murders and co-author of Unsolved Murders, True Crime Cases Uncovered. 
Using investigative research combined with primary audio, including 911 calls, interviews and trial testimony, Morbidology takes a look at some of the world's most heinous murders. Do you know why you're here? For a uh, home invasion gone terribly wrong. Listen to Morbidology now on Himalaya, Apple, Stitcher, Podbean or wherever else you get podcasts. I've had the opportunity to sit down with author Paulette Bro, who wrote a book entitled Never at Ease about her 30-year journey as a female officer with the RCMP. My name is Paulette Bro, and I was an RCMP officer for 30 years, so I served it all in the province of Ontario. I'm originally from New Brunswick, so, so I got posted in Ontario. And in Ontario, we don't do uniform duties here, which I didn't know. So I went right into a plainclothes unit, and right into the drug unit was my very first job. And uh, they said, wow, you're a girl. Yeah, I am. I was the only girl in a 40-man detachment. And they didn't know what to do with me. So they said, why don't you do undercover work for us? Go out and buy drugs for us. I had no idea what I was doing. But I said, sure, I'll do that for you. And from there, I started a nine-year-long journey of undercover work throughout, like, throughout Canada. So not only do I do the work in where I started, Niagara Falls, but then you got to move from town to town, place to place, because you get recognized, you get seen. My journey in the RCMP was, had some really great highs and some really bad lows. Being a woman was not always an acceptable thing, even though it was mandated by the government to hire women. It wasn't still accepted by all the men in the RCMP. So I wrote a book about the journey about how hard it is for women to work in a male-dominated organization and the challenges that you may face. After being in the RCMP for 30 years and seeing the challenges that women face, not only in policing but in all male-dominated organizations, whether it be firefighting, being a female plumber or mechanic or electrician in a very male-dominated world, I'm sure they all face the same kind of issues as I did. And several women, during the class action lawsuit with the RCMP, we uh, sued the RCMP for the harassment and sexual harassment of women in the workplace. And I'm sure that that's consistent in all male-dominated workplaces. So the book is, even though it was based on me, the RCMP, it could relate to so many other women and future women who want to join and, and get involved in male-dominated organizations where the women are just still a minority in that workplace. So my hope and dream is that people will read this and find some hope and inspiration that you can succeed in a male-dominated occupation, but also to give them that little bit of insight that it may also be a challenge for them as well. I started writing for many different reasons, not necessarily to put it into a book, but after I started writing and writing for many different uh, reasons, then I saw the possibility of a book being in there. One of the things I try to do being a female officer is trying to be a role model for others. And towards the end of all my writing, I thought, you know what, I could write a book that will help other women 
A, to say that you're not alone and it's okay to struggle in, in a male-dominated uh, domain, but also to give back a little bit because all the proceeds from the book are going to go to charity, to the National Service Dogs, which is something that's very near and dear to my heart. So uh, many women, as a result of uh, the type of traumatic experiences that they dealt with in the, in the RCMP or in the workplace, suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. So I thought, well, the National Service Dogs also give dogs to people that have post-traumatic stress, and what a great way to give back. If I could give any advice to young women who want to go into a male-dominated occupation, I guess my first advice would start if they could, maybe in high school, you know how you can do a, a work-along or a, a co-op. If they could do a co-op and go for a week and just see what it's like and get a feel for it, I say for people that want to join law enforcement, whether it's male or female, to try to do a ride-along with the local police service or try to join as an auxiliary. And that way there they get to drive along with the officer and they get to see what it's like for a period of time. The good part about that is it also gives the police service a chance to see you as an individual, to see if you're someone that they're interested in as well. So that's a double-edged sword where it helps the police service have a good look at the candidate and the candidate have a good look at that police service. I asked Paulette to give us a few stories that are showcased in her book. I think I would start right away with uh, when I first arrived in Niagara. I uh, got picked up at the airport, got taken down to the detachment. That's when I realized nobody was in uniform. There wasn't any marked cars. I thought, that's really strange. And the very next day when I went into the office, that's when it became clear that I was the only woman in the whole detachment. I was the only female officer. So here I was with 40 male officers and me. And at first I didn't think that would be a big problem. But when I first got stationed to the drug section... The, the drug commander called me into his office, closed the door, and said, you should be barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen and not in my drug section. And I thought, wow, that's not the greeting I was expecting. I thought, you know, they'd be happy to have an extra person, someone else to do some work, but that wasn't the greeting I got. Within three weeks from that, I had one of the male officers grab me, throw me against the wall, and stick his tongue down my throat. In the office in a RCMP detachment. That is not, once again, what I was expecting. You figure you can trust your coworkers and the people that you work with. And I was in a situation where I didn't know who I could trust and I wasn't feeling welcome to be there. So you can imagine leaving your home province, traveling to a brand new place, no one that you know, you have no living relative anywhere near you, and this is the type of environment that you start to work in. So for me, from the first days of arriving in my home, my new detachment and my new job, I was already having to climb a hill turned into a mountain. And that never really stopped for the 30 years that I was in. You'd overcome one mountain, and as soon as you thought you were in a valley, there'd be another mountain or another issue coming up that you had to face and you had to overcome and you had to conquer. Every single day I was challenged. Are you good enough? Are you strong enough? And why are you here? And I did it, though. After 30 years, I walked out with my head held high and an excellent reputation. There's a couple of really great stories in here. There's a really funny one here in where I was teaching on a course. It used to be our use of force training course. One of the candidates on the course threw me his protection cup and said, here's your face mask, bro. Put it on. 
And I looked at him and said, were you injured in a war or something? It's pretty small <laughs> in front of 28 other men. And he never, ever teased me again. <laughs> that was the end of his teasing days. <laughs> you have to be quick on your feet. And that's the thing you had to be. I'll tell you a cute story. Uh, an incident that happened to me one night when I was doing undercover work. I went to the bus depot because the rumor was, and the, the stories around town was that if you hung around the bus depot, you could buy drugs. So one night they sent me in to go and buy drugs. So I see the first guy, he's selling some marijuana, so I bought some marijuana. But then when I turned around, I saw another guy, and he was selling crack cocaine. Well, crack cocaine was brand spanking new at the time. We'd always heard about crack cocaine in New York City, but never in Canada. This was a first. So I turned around and I asked the guy, how much for a rock? He says, well, you can pick any rock you want, but 50 bucks. Hmm, okay. So, of course, I look at all of the crack cocaine in his hand, and, of course, I take the biggest one. I said, how much for this one? Fifty bucks. I said, done. So I give him the money, and I walk away. So the reason why I walk away is to tell my cover team that I've just made a purchase of marijuana and crack cocaine to give the description of the two people and to arrest them immediately. As I'm walking away to tell my cover team about my purchase, I turned around and the fellow that I had bought the crack cocaine from was following me. Well, I didn't realize he was following me. So as I get into the van, I tell my cover team right away, that's the guy I just bought crack cocaine from, him. So as I open the van door and he takes a look at my face, he starts to run. I have no idea why he's running, but he's running. So we take off running after him. Now here I am, because I do undercover work, I have no gun no radio, no equipment, just me. So my partner and the fellow driving the cover van, that's all there is, and there's another vehicle with a couple more people in it. So we take off running after this guy. And as we're running, we're passing by the Niagara Regional Police Station, and I, saw, and I figured, this is great. You know, I couldn't find a policeman, couldn't find a police car anywhere. Here's the headquarters, and everybody must have been out on the road because there was nobody in the parking lot. So as I'm running after him, I'm saying, you better be a marathon runner because I'm going to catch you because I wanted to arrest him. He didn't know maybe I was a police, so finally I said, stop police, police officer, stop or I'll shoot. I didn't have a gun, but it was dark out, so I decided to stick my finger out like a gun in the middle of the night, thinking he may not know any better, right? He may not see that I don't have a gun, but here I am pointing my finger at him, running, saying, stop police. Never say stop police and threaten to shoot anyone. He ran faster. So now the chase is on. Now we're running much faster. He's out. He's got legs like up to my neck. I'm chasing for all I'm worth down the street, hollering at him that it, please stop, please stop. The next thing you know, it's, lar it's big garbage day. And as he's running, he hits a lazy boy chair, does a tumble, and we finally catch him and place him under arrest. What I didn't know, and this is the cute part of the story, Within seconds of me and, and my partner grabbing this guy and putting him under arrest, the regional police show up, take my partner, and put him in handcuffs. I said, what are you doing? You've got the wrong person. He said, oh, no. We received a complaint about some poor girl running down the street and some white guy chasing her down the street, and that's the description of him right there. I said, but that's my partner. We were chasing him. What happened is my partner has asthma, and he was falling behind, so it looked like he was chasing me instead of us chasing after the, crocaine, the crack cocaine dealer. 
At the end of the day, the reason why the crack cocaine dealer was running is because what he sold me was a piece of ivory soap wrapped in cellophane. It wasn't crack cocaine at all. It was a piece of soap that he held out to be crack cocaine. When it came to go to court, the judge gave him two years in jail and said, if it had, if it had been real crack cocaine, I'd have sent you you to four years instead of two. So that's the cute little story of me oh, making my goodness. first ever purchase of crack cocaine as an undercover officer. That's really cute. <laughs> I thought you'd like that one. Yeah, that was a good one. <laughs> one day we received a tip from Crime Stoppers. Crime Stoppers we had a really great relationship with and we got a lot of very good tips from Crime Stoppers. And at one point we received a tip of a, an apartment building where they were selling crack cocaine. We had enough information based on information we had, plus with the Crime Stoppers tip, to conduct a search warrant. So we ended up getting a search warrant for the apartment. Um, what we needed to do was then go to the apartment and execute the search warrant. While we were at, the, just as we were entering into the apartment building, without us even knowing it, there was two men and a woman walking into the building at the same time as we were. So we just waited back a minute and said, let those guys go, because we didn't know who they were. We just didn't want to get them wrapped up in what we were doing. As it turns out, they were the people who lived in the apartment where we were going to go execute the warrant. We didn't know that until I went to the door. So what happens is, because I was the only woman in the drug section, they knew that everybody would open the door for a woman. Because at the time, most people don't think of women as being police officers. They always think it's a man that's going to come to the door. So I went to the door, knocked on the door, and said, Hi, can I get some crack? I heard I could get some crack here. They open the door, and they start to let me in. As they let me in, the rest of my team comes in behind, and we rush into this apartment. By the time I do that, I grab the first guy I see in the middle of the room, there's a woman and there's another guy. So everybody grabs somebody. But just as I'm grabbing him, he reaches into the waistband of his jeans and pulls out a revolver and holds it up, pulling it out like he's going to use it. And because I'm the closest person to him, I jumped on his back and knocked him to the floor. Now I've got my foot on his back. Now I've got my gun out and my leg is shaking. The adrenaline from that incident of him pulling his gun just as I'm about to grab onto him just my adrenaline was just shaking and it felt he must have thought I was kicking him because my leg wouldn't stop shaking the adrenaline and the rush and the excitement of all of that rushing in what we didn't know from the doorway to where he was he was finally taken down there was a trail of bullets he was trying to load his gun so we thought he must have heard us when we were at the bottom of the stairs at the apartment building. He must have overheard us talking about doing the raid, and he knew we were coming for him. And that whole time he was getting his gun loaded up and ready to use. So those are some of the incidents that we get involved with when we're doing drug raids. There was a point in time where no one would wear a bulletproof vest. Then we got to a point where we wouldn't leave the office without it because we knew that it was becoming more and more dangerous almost every single time we went out. We would encounter more and more weapons all the time. As you know, in Bradford, we have a big issue with weapons as well. I asked Paulette if she foresaw any other books in her future. That's a good question. I'm not sure um, when I wrote this book whether there was another book in it but or to come from it. But there is 30 years of policing experience that I have to choose from. And even though this covers it, it's like a rock skipping on water, this book. 
in which I tell a little bit from, you know, different years of, of service, like special incidents that marked a place in my memory that I felt was significant enough to rewrite. So I, there could very well be another book in this. What I'm trying to do right now is I'm going to go on the le- lecture circuit and do some talks, uh, go around and do that sort of thing to help promote the book. Uh, because I want to promote it as well as I can, because once again, the money will be going to charity. So I'd, I'd like to raise as much money as I can for charity. But yeah, there's a possibility of another book in the future. It was very therapeutic to write this book. At times, it was extremely difficult, and I'd have to stop writing for a while and take a break from it, because there's some very sensitive things that happened to me during my career that were painful to relive. So I'd have to take a break when I got to those moments in the book, and then take a week or two to try to digest and, you know, because you're reliving the things that you've gone through. You're reliving the excitement of it, you're reliving the trauma of it, and you're reliving the good times as well. But when it comes to the traumatic times, sometimes as, a, as an author I had to take a step back and wait a couple of weeks for that to settle down again, get those old feelings to settle down again, and then go back to writing. But yes, very therapeutic. I, I highly recommend anyone who is dealing with issues or life issues or personal issues to actually keep a journal. It's very therapeutic to to write it down, even if it's only to yourself. The name of the book is Never at Ease. It's available online only, so it's not in bookstores, but it's available through Indigo Chapters, Amazon.ca, iTunes, Google Play, uh, Nook, Barnes & Noble, Friesen Press, which is the uh, publishing company that uh, published it, I have a Facebook page called Never at Ease, so it's the name of the book, and that way there people can get in touch with me if they want me to come and speak with about the book or do a presentation about the RCMP or the book. Then, yeah, Never at Ease at, on Facebook is the is the social medium that I've used. You know, there's a lot of cute, funny stories in here as well. Uh, one time I was working for the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police Conference in Hamilton. And because I'm French, I could. Uh, I used to wear a sign that says "Je parle français" on my shirt, but so it was my name, Paulette, and then below it it was "I, je parle français." And all of a sudden, I had a couple of the police chiefs calling me Francis, and I'm like, Francis, where is that coming from? So of course, it took me a minute or two to figure it out that "français" looks like Francis. And so a lot of them took, mistook my name to be Francis. So I got nicknamed Francis the Walmart Greeter at the Canadian Chiefs of Police Conference because most of the chiefs were calling me Francis instead of Paulette. <laughs> so there's a lot of cute stories like that in there. A link to Paulette Bro's Never at Ease Facebook page will be included in the show notes of this episode, as well as a link to Amazon.ca where you can find Paulette's book. Never at Ease is also available at Indigo's chapter online, as well as from the publisher, and is available as an ebook through different ebook platforms. 